following story is told of an old miser who was on his deathbed and at that time called in his doctor, his lawyer, and his minister. He said, gentlemen, I'm, a, I'm going to disprove the myth that you cannot take it with you. Under my mattress are three envelopes, each containing $30,000. I want each of you to take one now and then throw it in the grave just before they shovel in the dirt. At the funeral, each threw his envelope into the grave, and as they left the cemetery, the minister started to feel guilty, and he said, I don't feel right about this. I've got something to confess. He says, I needed $10,000 very badly for our church building program. And I thought, what a waste it is to throw the money in. So I kept $10,000 and threw in only $20,000. At that point, the doctor said, man, I'm so glad you said something because I needed money for a new wing of the hospital. And I thought it was too too that it was a waste. And so I kept $20,000 and threw in $10,000. The attorney couldn't believe what he was hearing. He said, I'm shocked. I'm ashamed at you both. How could you withhold that money? said, I kept the $30,000, but at least I threw in a personal check for the full amount. <laughs> you know, when I thought about that story, it illustrates how easy it is to deceive ourselves into believing that we're okay uh, when we're not. And that's the point that Jesus makes in our ongoing study through the Bible. And as we look at the Gospel of Luke, specifically in chapter 5 today, here Luke helps us to see how Jesus, as the great physician, has come to heal those who are spiritually sick. The problem, as we will see, is that there are many who think that they're well when in fact they are dead in their sins. You know, recently I have learned that one of the most important responsibilities of a physician is to convince his or her patient that he or she is sick and in need of treatment. You know, on a personal note, other than the fact that I found a lump in my groin, I felt fine. Yet objective evidence uh, gave, you know, yet objective testing gave evidence of a malignancy and the need for further treatment. And the latest surgery revealed the need for further aggressive treatment, whether it's radiation and chemo, to combat an aggressive opponent, this opponent that's called cancer. You know, the other morning, Linda and I were out, and as we were at a particular shopping center, we walked by a car, and in the car was a gal who was sitting there, and I, and I really felt the urge to go and talk to her. It was evident to me that she was going through chemotherapy. She had a scarf around her head, and it was pretty, pretty evident to me what she was enduring, and uh, Linda s- said that she would go in the store, and I walked over, and I began to have a conversation with her, asking her about her treatment and what she was going through, and and, and it was great. We had a great conversation. It was a great opportunity to share with her just how God had been encouraging me. And, you know, and I've heard it called often that, you know, cancer is called the big C. You know, and I asked her if she had heard that. She said, yes. I said, well, I just want to tell you that the big C is Christ. You know, cancer is a little C, but Jesus Christ is the big C. And we had a great opportunity to talk and to share. And her mother ended up coming out, and she also was going through pancreatic cancer and through the end of the conversation, she said, hey, would you, love the, would, you, would you be willing to come and talk to our group? I said, I'd love to do that. And so I'm praying that we would hear from her and that we would have the opportunity to do that. But anyway, the point is, I can't help but see a spiritual parallel and that Jesus in this passage that we're about to examine tries to convince a group of men, religious people, that they are in desperate need of spiritual healing. And he will, throughout his ministry, continue to try to help these folks who think that they're in good shape spiritually to see their desperate need for the healing touch of the great physician. 
And that's exactly what we see take place in Luke chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me, starting with verse 27 on this passage that introduces to us Jesus Christ, the great physician. In this passage, Jesus teaches the importance of being forgiven by God, specifically to those who mistakenly believe that they're okay and not in need of any help. In Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 27, we read these words. It says, And after that, he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. He said, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must put, be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. In this particular chapter, we're going to examine three points that will help provide clarity regarding the passage. Number one, we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding his teaching, what led to the teaching that we see before us. And the second thing is the criticisms also that caused his answer. And then Jesus will conclude his time of teaching by emphasizing a parable. So first in verses 27 through 29, let's take a look at the circumstances that surrounded his teaching that is laid out before us. In verse 27, and we read, And after that he went out and noticed a tax gatherer named Levi, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. It says, And also Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. As we take a look at this first part, after Jesus had demonstrated, notice he says, and after that, it ties into what we had already studied. And after Jesus had demonstrated by the healing, by healing the paralytic that he had the authority to forgive sins, we're told that he went out and the word is he noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in his tax office. The word noticed or observed or saw or fixed or looked at intently means exactly that. To look at intently, turn ahead to Acts chapter 1 where the same word is used to help us get an understanding of what it was that was taking place. In Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 9, we read these words. It says, And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing, and here's the word that's translated, noticed in the, in the Luke par, uh, parallel passage, it says, and, and they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. 
And behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. It's not hard to see as Jesus ascended into heaven that those who were there that were witnessing this were looking intently as he was risen into the sky. And they were looking intently and they were gazing into the sky. And they were looking intently with a purpose behind it. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. So they were gazing or looking intently at what was taking place before them. The same word, if you turn back to Luke chapter 5, is used where we're told that after this, Jesus went out and noticed or looked intently at Levi, a tax gatherer who was sitting in his tax office. In other words, Jesus gave Levi what I like to call the look. You know, and as you, as you laugh and chuckle about it, I think you know where I'm going with it, but have you ever given someone the look? Have you ever received the look from someone? It's kind of that look. Now, you know, for years I've been involved in men's Bible studies, and, you know, there are times where I kind of know what's going on in somebody's life, and I'll just kind of give them the look. And, and they know, but they're not sure if they know that I know what it is that they don't want me to know. You follow me? It's kind of like they're sitting there and they're wondering, does he know what I hope he doesn't know? But he's looking at me like he knows. And I think he now knows by the way I'm looking at him that he knows that what he knows, I know he knows. And man, you know what? And what am I going to do now that he knows? It's kind of that look. And that's what's happening here. It's like Jesus kind of, he just looked intently at Levi. And you know what? And he knew. Now, see, now if you've ever given your kids the look, you know, you're having that conversation and you're giving the look. Like, um, how was school today? See, that question makes them start to wonder if you already know how school was today and that you got a call from someone at school and it's like you're setting them up, you know. It's like you're going to tell me the truth or not because you know why? Look at the look. I know how school was today, but I want to see if you are willing to tell me how school went today. Give them the look. Now, if we can give each other the look, how much more so can God give the look because he actually does know everything. All things are laid bare and open to him to whom we have to do. So Jesus gave Levi the look. And Levi knew that Jesus knew what it was that Levi was trying to hide from everybody else. And as I was thinking about that, he knew, Levi knew that though he was incredibly wealthy, Jesus knew that he was in spiritual poverty. See, Levi knew by the look that though Levi had many friends, Jesus knew that Levi was incredibly lonely. See, Levi knew the way Jesus looked at him, though he had everything that the world had to offer... He knew, Jesus knew, that he was empty. And he was lonely, and he was miserable, and he was frustrated, and his life had no purpose, his life had no reason. And the way Jesus looked at him, Levi knew that Jesus knew what nobody else knew. All the people who wanted to have what Levi had, 
Levi knew that none of it meant anything because Levi knew and understood what Solomon had discovered generations before him. And to paraphrase it, basically Solomon said this, you know what, I've got fame, I've got fortune, I've got human relationships, I've got everything this world has to offer. And you know what, folks, let me tell you something, it is vanity. It is chasing soap bubbles. It doesn't mean anything because if one does not have a right relationship with God, his creator, he has nothing. See, that's the look that Jesus gave Levi. And it penetrated his soul. It penetrated his heart. And Jesus noticed, as God always does, what man often misses, the brokenness and frailty of humanity. You know, you see, God is not like man who gets hung up on the outer appearance, but he sees the heart. And as I was reading this, I was struck by the the thought that we need to notice or see others as God sees them in great need of spiritual healing. We need to see others and notice them as God sees them. We don't need to get sidetracked or get caught up in the trappings of the outward appearance. He sees beyond the nice house and the expensive car. He sees beyond the professional titles and the education degrees. He sees beyond the, quote, successful business. And he sees through shallow smiles and the so-called perfect marriages and families. And he gives us the look. He gives us that, you know what, you can't fool me. You can't hide from me. You can't run from me. You can fool everybody else, but I know your heart, and I know your longing, and I know your aching, and I know your misery, and I know your emptiness, and I know your sense of futility and vanity, and I know at the end of the day you're going, what is life all about? What is the purpose of all of it? Where do I, why am I here? Where am I going? Where do I go after I die? See, God knows those questions of our heart because He's made us. He made us to long for fellowship with Him. And He sees through it. I deal with men and women who have everything the world has to offer. And for 20 years I have watched it. I have watched multi-million dollar contracts. I've watched anything that money can buy. I've seen them explored. I've seen them pursue it. I've seen them purchase it. I've seen it all. I've seen everything that you could ever imagine to be able to do without restraints or limitations. I have met people that are personal friends that could do anything they want to do whenever they want to do it. And you know what, though? That's what we see externally, but I've been behind the curtain. You see him on the field. You see him on the court. I see him in the clubhouse. I see him behind the scenes. And I see their misery, and I see their loneliness, and I see their heartache, and I see their sense of longing for something greater than what this world has to offer. And I see their need for a Savior. I see their need to be touched spiritually, to be healed by the great physician. And it's a wonderful thing not to get hung up on all the trappings, because they get to experience what some pursue for a lifetime. And they have it all at this moment in time, and they see that it's nothing. It's nothing. Some of you are still pursuing these things that you think will will fill that emptiness or this void in your life. And you're still pursuing it thinking that's what I'm missing in life. And the only thing that you're missing is a relationship with God, your creator. Through repentance. And that's what this message is all about. And that's what Jesus teaches. I I didn't come to heal those who are self-righteous. But I came to call sinners to repentance. See, he says to him, he gives him the look, and notice what he says. He says, follow me. He gives him the look and says, follow me. 
And I love this because you know what? The fact that he knew his heart reminds me of Nathaniel. When Jesus came to him and said, before, before, when you were under the tree, I knew what you were thinking. And Nathaniel said, I have met the one. I have met the one that has been promised to us. And Jesus started to laugh and said, because I knew what you were thinking, I knew what you were doing when you were under the tree. He says, you're going to see greater things than this. But he knew his thoughts. He knew his heart. He knew where he was. He knew where he was in life. He knew what he needed more than anything was to be touched by the healing touch of the great physician. What a wonderful thing. And it was because of that, his understanding that he knew everything. And the, good, and, and, and the Samaritan woman said, come and I want to introduce you to someone who knew everything about me. Every little detail of my life, he knew it all. Could this be the one that God has promised? Could he be the savior of the world? Is he the Christ? Come and see for yourself. And she brought him in front of Jesus. I love that. He says, follow me. And Levi left everything. He left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. He began to follow him. He was sick of his vain life. He was sick of the loneliness. He was looking for his real needs to be met. He was sick of emptiness and filling the day with parties and drugs and, and booze and, and, and toys and everything the world had to offer. He was sick of all of it. And he got up and he left it all and he followed him. Jesus said, follow me. It's present tense and continuous. In other words, Jesus said, follow me now and forevermore. Follow me. And he did. And I don't think that we truly appreciate what that meant for Levi to leave everything behind. It's a picture of faith that we see in Hebrews chapter 11 where Abraham left everything and followed the commandment, command of God. Follow me. Faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of not, things not seen. He left everything that he could see, feel, and touch to follow Jesus to an area that he had never been, that he had ne knows nothing about, but he knew that he knew him, and so therefore anyone who knew me, I'm going to follow him because he's got the answers, he's got the hope, he's got the words of eternal life as the disciples would later discover, I'm going to follow him. But I don't think we can appreciate it until you understand that Levi, like, like Zacchaeus, who we're going to meet later in our study through Luke, was a tax collector who had made a fortune by taking advantage of his position. He was a tax collector for the Roman government. The Romans uh, collected their taxes through a system that they called tax farming. In essence, what they would do is they would assess a certain amount of money that was due a certain district based on population and, and revenue and things of that nature. And then they would sell that franchise, so to speak, to the highest bidder. And so Levi was franchised out as a Roman tax collector to the highest bidder, which was him. And all that the Roman government asked for was, you have to give us a certain amount of money at the end of the year. But you know what? Anything they collected above and beyond that was, you know, their commission, their brokerage fee, whatever it was that they want to call it. And it was, you know, for the, to recover their overhead. And they were extortionists. They robbed people. If somebody came into town, they could make somebody stop at any moment, get off their, get off their, 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 mule or, or get off their, their, their um, transportation means of any kind, they would say, unload your backpack, unload everything that you have. They would look and see what they had, and then they would take whatever it is that they wanted. And if they wanted more than they had, then they would also assess a certain uh, loan to them that say, oh, well, if you can't pay, we'll loan you the money at an exorbitant amount of interest. 
Then they would take local Jewish people, the, 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 the uh, kind of the, uh, the hitmen of the day, the, the, the collectors of the day, and they would say, you know what, uh, so-and-so owes some money, go and collect it from them. Any way that you can, go and collect it. These people were despised. In fact, they were despicable in, in, in Jewish society. In fact, they were classed in, in Luke 18. They were put in the same category as robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. In Matthew 21, they were put in the same the company as prostitutes. And in Matthew 18, with pagan Gentiles. They were not only hated for their robbery, but they were also hated because they were sellouts to the, to the Roman Empire. And tax collectors, the Jews decided tax collectors couldn't serve as witnesses in court, and they were excommunicated from the synagogues. Low-life Levi and his friends were the lowest of the lowest, and when we understand how despicable they were and despised by their, their contemporaries, it's easy to understand what we see taking place here as far as another confrontation with the religious people of the day. In this decision to follow Jesus and leave behind his sinful way of making money, we see a beautiful picture of re- repentance and redemption and the newness of life that's found in Christ. This man said, you know, just as Zacchaeus did, since I have stolen from people, I will repay him four times. And what Levi did was he was walking this way and he was robbing people. He was dead to God. He was alive to sin. He was living to please himself. And when Jesus said, follow me, he repented of his ways. He turned and he followed Jesus. It's a beautiful word picture of repentance. And when he left that lifestyle, he left robbing and cheating and stealing people. He left everything that he had had. He left every material possession that he had. And he began to follow Jesus and follow me forevermore. And we believe that that's a time that Jesus said, you're no longer Levi, you are Matthew, a gift from God. And the circumstances surrounding his teaching, number one, was the conversion of Levi to Matthew, the gift of God. And as I thought about the name, the gift of God, I couldn't help but think, but uh, as we say, by, by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, so that no one could ever boast. Levi was extended God's mercy and grace. He didn't work his way to Jesus' favor. He didn't do anything that would be acknowledged by God as anything worthwhile whatsoever. The only thing that he did is the thing that God tells all men to do, and that is he repented. He turned from what he was doing in sinful ways before God, and he trusted in Jesus Christ, and he began to follow him that day and forevermore. And the Bible says it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one could ever boast. And if there's anyone that could boast about buying their way into heaven, it's somebody who's wealthy. But his wealth didn't do anything for him. It was his brokenness and his contrite heart that God did not despise. And so as we look at this, it's utterly amazing when you think about it because of all the people in Capernaum, Levi was the most publicly unacceptable candidate for discipleship. Jesus sought out the man that no one else wanted, the one who some wished would come under God's most severe judgment. And this is one of the glories of Jesus' ministry then and even today. If you stop and think about it, it's exactly what Luke has been building in this gospel arrangement, and that is this. Jesus is healing the impossibly disfigured leper. 
demonstrating his power to heal the ravages of sin. Then he pronounced to those gathered around the paralytic that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And now we see after that, Jesus offers real forgiveness for real guilt to those who repent of their sins and follow him. It's beautiful. You know, we also learn that, from, that Jesus sees what we can become even while we're lost in our sins. You know, the world saw Levi, this disfigured life of a robber and a thief, and God saw Matthew, a writer of the Gospels, an evangelist, and a collector of souls. See, God sees in sinners with all their moral deformity through his ultimate artist eyes. I said it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast. It goes on to say, and we are also his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the works that God has prepared for us to do before the foundation of the earth. Even today, those who are in rebellion against God, the Bible says that God so loves the world, not only that he sent his only begotten son, but yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God sees lost people today and sees them through his redemptive eyes at what they'll become for his sake and for his glory and for his kingdom. See, you and I have got to be careful that we see people through God's eyes. Because it's very easy to become like that society did and see these tax gatherers and see people that, you know what, they deserve the judgment of God. And we've got to be very careful that we don't become judgmental in how we respond to others who have never come to repentance of their sins. We've got to be very careful as we look at this, and we'll talk more about this, but how did Levi respond to God's grace, to Jesus calling him to be a disciple? The Bible says that he got up and followed him. And the second thing is, notice, there was a huge celebration. In verse 29, it says, And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people reclining at the table with him. Man, there was a big party that he had, and he invited all the friends that he knew. Levi hosted his own retirement party and made Jesus the focus of the attention. And it says that a reception was held. Literally, it means a great feast to receive another. And I can't help but think, isn't it wonderful? When you receive Jesus Christ into your life as Savior, that you just want to throw a big old party and make him the, the, the guest of honor. To as many as received him, he's given the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. Zacchaeus came down from the sycamore tree and we're told and received him gladly. He had a great big reception for him. I love the picture that's portrayed by this celebration. There's a conversion and there's a celebration. Levi hosted the feast not for selfish reasons, but a celebration as what happened to him. You know, feasting is for laughter and merriment, we're told in Ecclesiastes 10, 19. Linda and I were out to lunch yesterday, and we were at a restaurant. We can hear the people that were working there laughing in the kitchen. I looked at her, I said, you know what, is there, a, is there a, a better sound on earth than to hear such laughter and joy and merriment? I mean, when, when your children were little and your grandchildren or whatever, is there a better sound in the world than to hear a little baby start to giggle? You know, you blow in their face and they start to giggle. Or, you know, of course, you don't blow hard enough to knock them over. But, you know, you, you blow in their face and they start to giggle and they start to laugh. It was like, man, I loved when our ki- I loved the age when they would laugh like that. There is nothing better when we're together as a family and just having laughter and being around and having a great time. And I just sit back sometimes and I take it all in and go, man, this is good stuff. Is there anything better than laughter, that medicine for the soul? 
And I'm not talking about laughter at the expense of others. I'm not talking about mean-spirited laughter or anything like that. I'm just talking about the joy that comes with living, knowing God is in control of all things. Just laughter and celebration. See, the ex-tax collector regarded the change in this life as an occasion for rejoicing, and indeed it is. Nothing is, is a greater occasion for rejoicing than conversion. Bishop Rao said this. He said, it is a far more important event than being married. Or if coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune, and I would add anniversaries or graduations or retirement. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and a priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and for all of eternity. It is an adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. The point is very simple. Coming to know Christ is a great reason to party. It really is. 25 years ago, Linda and I were invited to a dinner where somebody shared how they had repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, how they had been born again. They had shared their testimony of what God had done in their life. And at the end of this time that was together, the person who was speaking said that, you know what, if you're here today and, and, and you're broken for your sins and you want to trust in Christ, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection, and you want to receive Him gladly into your life as your Savior, then just pray this prayer at the end. And, you know, they had some cards and we filled them out and there was a place. If you prayed that prayer, just check that box. And at the end of all, you know, we put it down on the table and the people that invited us, you know, as we were talking to other people, they were peeking to see. You know how that is. They're like they're peeking to see. And all of a sudden, they came running over and they're giving us this big hug and they're jumping around. And I was like, what in the world? I mean, what's going on? And it's like, then I realized they peeked, you know. They peeked at, at the card, right? But they were so excited. They were kind of like, hey, you know, man, welcome to God's family. And I'm looking at them like, what in the world is going on here? I had no idea what I do today, how appropriate that was for them to celebrate. For a sinner had come to life. This dead person spiritually had become alive spiritually to God and was born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts. Man, they were so excited. And then I thought, man, you know what? I mean, all the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner comes to faith in Christ. And I'm thinking, man, maybe you and I could get a little bit excited when a person bows their knee at the cross of Jesus Christ and comes to faith in our Savior. Maybe we can get a little bit excited about that. Maybe we can understand that this person has gone to death to life, from hell to heaven, from the child of the devil in darkness into God's family. Man, we can get a little bit excited about that. Every now and then just kind of go, ooh, Amen. You know, think about this, man. This is so awesome. And you know what? What's, what's even more exciting about it is this retired tax gatherer also hosted the feast for his friend's sake. He invited everybody he knew, and he knew one thing about his friends. They couldn't say no to a party. <laughs> he knew that. He knew that everybody he invited would come, and everybody who wasn't invited would try to sneak in. And you know what he did? He said, this is great. You're all coming to the party. I'm picking up the tab. All you can eat, all you can drink. And you know what he did? He got him in front of Jesus. Isn't that great? Talk about creativity. We're talking about the guys who carried the guy up on the roof and dropped him down through the roof to get in front of Jesus. I'm thinking, man, how, how much more so? I mean, how hard would it be to throw a party 
invite people to come and then get them in front of Jesus. What's the purpose of the party? I just want to let you know what, how exciting it is to be forgiven by God for sin, that my past is gone, old things have passed away, all things become new. He has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. I am no long, that guy no longer lives. Levi's dead. Saul of Tarsus is dead. Matthew is alive. Paul is alive. I am dead to self, and I'm alive to Christ, and I just want to throw a party and tell you all about it. Have you ever done that? Anybody ever done that? I bet you throw birthday parties. I bet you throw graduation parties. I bet you threw retirement party. I bet you threw parties for everything you can think of throwing a party for except coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to encourage you throw a party and invite all your friends. Because I don't know about you, but my friends, man, if we're to pick up the tab, there's people not even friends. They'll still come. And the reason I know that is this. You know what? When we're invited to come to a Bible teaching church the first time in our life, the only reason we went is because the people invited us said, after church, we're buying lunch. <laughs> it worked on me. I mean, seriously. It's like, all right, well, where are we eating? You know, hey, and, and, and I'm going to challenge you the same thing. You know what? Invite people to church to hear God's word because I will guarantee you this. As long as there is breath in me, I will make sure that I preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will never embarrass you or disappoint you that you finally got somebody to come to church with you. And I never mentioned the gospel. That will never happen. And so I'll encourage you. Come, bring people with you, and they will hear of their need for forgiveness. It's awesome. Let me give you an example of somebody who's really, really creative. And I asked permission to do this, but I'll leave out some of it that's a little more personal. But I got this email this past week, a copy of an email that was sent by someone here to all their friends and family. And he wrote this. You may or may not have heard by now that I am leaving his current place of employment to open the next chapter in my professional career. I'll tell you more about that in a bit, but I also wanted to share something else that I feel is even more important. This Sunday, today, September 21st, I will publicly acknowledge my commitment to our Lord and Savior by being baptized. The Bible says, so then those who accepted his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. My life changed significantly on May 17, 2002. That is the day that I realized that my life had a huge void and that though I may have appeared on the outside to have everything going my way, I was really surrounded by emptiness and loneliness. I had a successful career, an amazing family, and the best friends that anyone could ask for. And even with all of this, there was still something seriously missing in my life. It says, I filled that void with alcohol, quote, friends, work, and other such vices that could never truly cover up the emptiness for sin had a tight grip on me. I remember thinking that I was a Christian, publicly saying that I was a Christian, even sometimes proclaiming my faith when I was drunk at a bar, but I was not a Christian. For those of you who have heard me say that that Christians are, are hypocrites, I can now understand how people like my old self could make you feel that way. I would ask you to remember, though, that no Christian is perfect, for we all fall short of the glory of God. We all make mistakes. This is hypocrisy and, unfortunately, life on earth. I was making the choice to be alone in the midst of my success. I was parting to fill the emptiness. I was neglecting my wonderful wife and daughter. I finally realized that I was living a double life, and my family was getting the short end of the stick, and God wasn't even a factor. As I was absolutely overcome by guilt, shame, and pain, I asked Jesus Christ into my life. To save me from my sins. 
And through my repentance and acceptance of him, I now know that I will have everlasting life. Being forgiven and walking with Christ is the most amazing and freeing peace that anyone could ever imagine. Those of you who have had this relationship are saying amen right now. But if you're not saying amen, I would ask if, you experience, if you're experiencing the same emptiness that I once felt. Are you experiencing guilt, pain, shame, and depression? Please hear me when I say that you don't have to. You too can be set free and experience peace and joy. All you have to do is ask for forgiveness of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a gift to you and the rewards are truly amazing. If I can help anyone with this or you'd like to talk about this, please let me know. Please don't miss this opportunity. He goes on and talks about his career change and he finishes this letter to his friends and family by saying, I'm sending you this email because you are all the people who I love and care for. And my prayer is that other positive life changes will result from this message. Sometimes it's difficult to have faith in something that you cannot see. But please believe me when I say that having faith in Jesus is the greatest step that you'll ever take. The Bible says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Is that awesome? That's awesome. And and as I thought, I thought, man, may we never grow weary in coming up with creative ways to get others to the feet of Jesus. This afternoon, it reminds me, we're having a baptism. I encourage all of us as a church family to be there to support and to celebrate with those who are publicly proclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ. I encourage you, if you haven't been baptized and you have a desire to, that there's still time to do that. Invite your friends, invite your family, invite everybody you can think of to come and to see what it's like to be freed from sin through faith in Christ. There's nothing better than it, folks. It's party time. And you know what's amazing is when we look at this, the circumstances surrounding Jesus' teaching were the conversion of a despised tax gatherer and the celebration which followed. But instead of rejoicing, the religious leaders began to grumble and they began to criticize those who were there, including Jesus' disciples. And I want you to see that. Instead of rejoicing as all the angels in heaven rejoice at this despicable, despised tax gatherer, even he wasn't beyond the healing spiritual touch of the great physician. Instead of praising God for that and yelling amen and being part of the party, you know what they did? They were kind of like the brother of the, of, of the, uh, of the man who came, turned from his sin and was pouting and moaning and groaning because dad threw a celebration for his prodigal son. They were nasty about it. They were resentful. They were critical. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples. They were complaining at the disciples. They didn't say anything to Jesus. They went to him and them and they began to grumble at him saying, Why do you people eat and drink with tax gatherers and with sinners? And Jesus answered said, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. They were criticized because of their association with tax gatherers and sinners. And I like how Jesus had their back. Jesus is our great advocate. You know, when people begin to criticize us for trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know what? God has our back. When you go and you try to reach people and people go, what are you associating with those type of people for? You know what? I want you to hear the words of Jesus where he says, you know what? Hey, listen, it's not those who are self-righteous that I've come for, but those who are sick. 
Just as a physician goes to heal those who are physically sick and know it, no physician can heal somebody who doesn't recognize their illness. If I refuse to believe what I'm told and I never go back to a doctor and never show up for any kind of treatment, there is no doctor on the face of the earth that will be able to help me beat this thing called cancer. I have got to recognize my need for healing and you have got to recognize your need for spiritual healing or God's forgiveness or the great physician cannot reach out and touch you. And that's the point that he was making. They were criticizing him. The scribes and Pharisees criticized Jesus because they didn't understand either his message or his ministry. Jesus simply didn't fit into their traditional religious life. It is always unfortunate when leaders resist change and refuse to try to understand the new things that God is doing. They questioned his associations. He was guilty in their eyes because he associated with tax gatherers and with sinners. It was almost like they were saying, how dare you? Your eating with these people indicates you have friendship with them and full acceptance. And it never occurred to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that their lack of concern for sinners and their cavalier mercilessness had distanced them from God. That's why Micah, for example, stated the Lord's case against Israel in the sixth chapter of his prophecy when he concluded by asking these words, And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. They were were despising those around them and wanted nothing to do with the lost nations. And God says, but what what does God desire of you? What does he desire of you and I as believers but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God, to love the mercy of God that's extended to people that people hate, to those who have abortions, to those who are homosexuals, to those who are drunks, to those who are, 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 are drug abusers, to those who are liars and cheats and thieves, to those who are, are, are child abusers. The world looks at these people and we get self-righteous and we get in our own little church cliques and we sit there and we look out at the world at everybody else and we look at how despised and despicable they are and God says, you are becoming pharisaical. What do I require of you? To act justly and to love God's mercy as he extends it to those who are despicable. But by the grace of God, go you and I, you too were one of those. Our problem is we don't realize how deprived we were. We don't realize the depths of our depravity. We don't realize how lost we are. Listen, folks, dead is dead. And I don't care what your background is. You were dead in your sins. So was I. We're no better than anybody else. But by the mercy and grace of God, we were raised with Christ to newness of life. And I hope to God that we never become a church who despises others who aren't like us now. Those doors have better always be open and welcome anyone who wants to walk through it. And we better never stereotype or prejudge anybody because, you know what, there by God's grace went you and I, and you and I walked through doors just like that. When, you know what, we walked in, I used to say, man, if I go to church, the ceiling's going to fall in on me. And it didn't. But you know what God did? He dug through the, the, the ceiling of heaven, and He extended His Son down on a cross who died for me and rose for my sins so that I could trust in Him and be made new in Christ. We need to never forget where God has brought us from. Because anyone who has come to faith in Christ was called from darkness 
in the light. We need to confess our sin and how we treat others who don't know Christ. And we need to see him as God sees him in desperate need of spiritual healing and the touch of the great physician. God, help us. We must never forget that we, too, were dead, as Paul writes, in our trespasses and sin. That each one of us can honestly say, as Paul said, that, you know what? No, I'm the worst. We dare not forget that people without Christ are lost sinners without hope and without God in the world. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. We must keep preaching the gospel to a lost world, inviting sinners to come to Christ and into his church. Following Christ requires getting our hands dirty, as it were, digging through that roof to get people in front of Jesus. Believing his words when he say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I've come to call the, not the righteous, but those who are sinners to what? To repentance. The gospel message is always the same. If you want to be forgiven by God, you must repent of your sin and turn to God and trust in him. As Levi repented of stealing money from people and all the wealth that he, that he accumulated by doing so, you must repent and turn from drugs. You must repent and turn from drinking. You must repent and turn from lying, cheating, stealing. Whatever it is, the sin that has caught you up, you must repent and turn from it and come to the cross and trust in Christ. And you know what? His arms are open wide to welcome you there. And then he will greet you, the resurrected, risen Savior, and give you life eternally through the power of his resurrection. But it is up to you. And it's even false pride to say, oh, I'm, too, I'm, I'm not worthy of God's you know, forgiveness. I'm too far lost. I'm too far gone. Even that's a prideful attitude that does not believe God or take him at his word when he says, you know what? All who are weary, come unto me, and I will give you rest. They didn't understand his associates with sinners. And they also had this attitude. Notice what he says. And they said to him, this time Jesus, the disciples of John often fast and often pray. The disciple of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours, they eat and drink. The Pharisees, the disciples of John, they all walk around somber, man. It's like, you know, it's like people that are baptized in vinegar. Have you ever seen religious people? They're the most miserable people in the world. You know why? Because they're trying to live up to some standard that they've set for themselves, and every one of them fail miserably. They can't even meet their own standards, yet alone the standards of God, and yet they think if I try to be true to myself, or do the best that I can, or be a good person, blah, 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 it's like, you can't. That's why religious people are so miserable. That's why religious people believe the more miserable I am, the more holy I am, and the closer I am to God. That's what the Pharisees bought into. You know, there's nowhere in the Scripture it's commanded to fast, but the Pharisees decided not only should we fast, but we should fast two days a week. And when we're fasting, they would put stuff on their face to make them look like they were even more decimated by their fasting. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 6 said, you know, when you fast, don't fast like them. When you pray, don't pray like them. When, don't, don't be like them. They're sitting around going, uh, uh, Oh, what's the matter? Uh, I'm fasting. A- ain't I spiritual? It's like, you know, and, and then Jesus comes along and his disciples see forgiveness in Christ and they're having a party. They were partying down. And the Pharisees hated him for it. Said, why is there such joy in your life? Why is there such happiness in your life? Why is there such peace? Why is there such assurance? Why do you have all these things that we don't have? And we're really religious. And that's why. Because you're religious 
And we have a relationship with God through faith and trust in Christ. And you know what? We can't help but shout with joy. Amen? Amen. You know what? I I love coming here because the majority of you people have smiles on your face every time we show up. It's like, man, you know what? I love being here. I love being around people who know what it's like to be redeemed. I love to be around people who know what it's like to have been forgiven. I love to have, be around people who know what it's like that no matter what's going on in your life, that God still has it all under control, and we don't have to worry about anything, but we can cast all our cares upon Him because He'll care for us, that we can be anxious for nothing but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We can let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It does doesn't mean we're not getting kicked around in the world we live in. It's like Norm said on Cheers once, hey, Norm, what's going on? How you doing? Hey, you know what? It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. I'm wearing milk boat underwear, okay? That's what it's like. I know what it's like. You know what it's like. But you know what? But we know what it's like to have a God who's in control. And while they're nipping at our legs, I can't do it with this one, but while they're nipping at our legs, you know, we know what it's like. But we can have joy and peace and confidence in the presence of God. It's a wonderful thing. And His disciples knew it. And they were partying down it's awesome there's nothing better than this so some of you folks you need to get a good hard look at what god has done for you in the word of god and you can smile it's okay some people it's like if they smile they think their face is going to break it's all right and what he was saying was, you know what, and it's okay too that my disciples are having joy in my presence because there's no better place to be. But you know what, there's a time coming where I'll be taken away from them and the word indicates that he will be taken from them violently. And that was fulfilled in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came and they took him away and they ripped him away violently from their presence And they took him and they tried him and they crucified him for claiming to be God. That was the charge against him and they were wrong for what they did because he is God in human flesh. They crucified him, but he rose again from the dead. He was taken violently from them and they said there's a day that's coming where they'll fast and they'll mourn. But you know what? But there's a day and that is today when we can have joy in the Lord because no one will ever take him from us ever again. For those who have trusted in Christ, he now lives within us. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In closing this teaching time of Jesus and our time together, he closed it emphasizing a parable. And let me close with these words. And he was also telling them a parable in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it into an old. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the the new will not match the old. It says, and no one puts new wine into wineskins. Otherwise, new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. It's the first parable that's introduced to us in the Gospel of Luke. And a parable simply means a story. Parallel, paramedic, uh, 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 paralegals. It's a story that comes along and God uses something in the physical realm to teach a spiritual truth. So what he was doing was he was taking something that they all understood and knew and said no one goes and gets a new garment, you know, and takes a piece out, you know, out of that to put into an old one. If you got a new garment, go with a new garment. Why would you go back to 
to wear in the old stuff. Then he says the same thing about wineskins. In wineskins, basically, they would take new wineskins because when they put wine in it, the wine would expand. And they said no one would put new wine into an old wineskin because when you put it in and it began to expand, it would burst and it would spill and it would lose everything that it was holding. And what Jesus was saying very clearly is this. He was comparing the teaching of the Pharisees to the teaching that now Jesus introduced. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, it's it's something new, it's brand new. The law that was set up by God was a tutor that would lead them to faith and trust in Jesus Christ where he would now usher in this age of grace. And the law would point to Jesus Christ and Jesus would now teach what it meant to be saved by grace through faith. And he's saying, don't be going back to the old stuff. There's something new. Jesus' teachings were brand new. Jesus' ways of salvation was brand new. He's saying, stop going back to the old stuff and now look at what God has introduced, something that was new and exciting and vibrant and eternal. Trust in Jesus Christ. His teaching is brand new. His teaching does not mix with the traditions of men. That's why men hate hated them because it was blown what they had established. They became the keepers of their own domain instead of trusting in God, and they hated him for it. His teaching, this new wine needs new methods, this wineskin that he's talking about. It meant that it's okay to associate with sinners to reach them for Jesus, yet without sin. Understand very carefully, listen to me, bad company corrupts good morals. We need a balance here when it comes to the full counsel of God. Listen, don't be telling me you're trying to reach your friends for Jesus by living a sinful lifestyle with them. Don't be telling them that you have to go to the bars and drink with them to, like, like was just read this morning. Hey, you know, I'd go in the bar and I'd drink and I'd get drunk and I'd talk to people about Jesus. Well, what in the world are you telling them that makes any sense? Or that they'll remember. You don't have to cross the line into sin in order to reach people for Jesus, but you know what? We can associate with people who don't know Christ because we're to be a light in the world that shines in darkness so we can put them to the light, the, the, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying we need to be creative and getting people in front of Christ. But unfortunately, most of the Jews preferred the old and would not even try the new. And that's what we'll close with in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says this, the old is enough. And what he means by that is simply this. There are a whole bunch of folks who say their religion is good enough. But they're confronted with the gospel. They're confronted with God's grace. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ, His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection. Receive Him as your Savior. And the world says, we don't have to do that because I'm content in my religion. But I've been going to that church for 80 years. I've been this, that, and the other. Every external rite and ritual that I could do, I've done. I've got my faith and trust in my church in my denomination, in my religious background, in my own efforts, in my own actions. And you know what? Frankly, that's good enough for me. Don't be telling me about trusting in Jesus. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. God sent a Savior into the world. They were supposed to be the ones looking for Him, waiting for Him, so that they can point Him out to the rest of the world. And they said, you know what? I'm satisfied. Just give me that old-fashioned religion. I'm just satisfied with that. And I don't like what Jesus has come to offer because it messes up my program and I have to trust in God's Son. Folks, in closing, never put your faith and trust in a church. Your faith and trust must be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection, 
and receiving him as your own personal savior. Jesus Christ still offers all things new. As a physician, he offers sinners new life and spiritual health. As the bridegroom, he brings new love and joy. He gives us the robe of righteousness and the wine of his spirit. Life is a feast, not a famine or a funeral. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can make that kind of difference in our lives. This entire chapter points in one direction. And that is to present the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in as many ways as possible so that men might hear and have an opportunity to choose whether they will accept him or reject him. Each one of us individually must make that own decision. And my question for you is a question that I ask on Wednesday and Thursday night for those who have have wanted to be baptized. And the question was this. Have you repented of your sin? trusted in Jesus Christ as death on the cross and the power of his resurrection and received him as your personal savior, yes or no? Have you? Yes or no? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the clarity of it, the clarity of the gospel, the newness that comes in Christ and the grace that comes. By grace, we're saved through faith. And God, I just pray for those who are here today. The question that is asked, have you trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, yes or no. If today you would like to trust in him, pray a simple prayer, similar to the one that we prayed many years ago that we marked on the card, God, forgive me for I am a sinner. The things that he said today, that guy up there preaching said, God, you know me. You've given me the look. You know my heart. You know that I've sinned. And God, you know the sins that I've sinned that other people to this day don't even know, but you know. God, I ask you to forgive me of them. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. And he is alive today and he's the great physician who wants to heal me spiritually. And I receive him as my Lord and Savior in the best way that I know how. God, forgive me and I trust in him today. Amen. For those who have prayed to receive Christ, There's an opportunity out in the patio every week, out in the gazebo area. There are people that are there that would love to talk to you about your decision and encourage you.